In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The God who desired the Virgin, blessed Kateri Tekawitha, to flower among the Native Americans in a life of innocence, grant through her intercession that when all are gathered into your church from every nation, tribe, and tongue, they may magnify you in a single canticle of praise through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. So today is her feast day, so I thought I'd use her collect. Remembering that the collect is that opening prayer. Um, or if you're praying the Liturgy of the Hours of the Divine Office, it's the closing prayer. So one and the same uh, can be used uh, for that. A uh, couple, couple notes for you. Um, what I handed out. So in theory, all the quotes and scriptures here are in order as I go through the talk uh, for it. Um, sorry, I dropped it down to 11 fonts and got rid of the margins mainly because there are so many. Uh, and so I was trying to kill as few trees as possible uh, for it. Uh, secondly, uh, you got the bibliography, and then uh, I passed out to you a what's called a liturgical note, a, uh, a nota. This came from the USCCB, uh, and it was sent. Uh, it was sent in January, uh, and it's the note of the change, the change in the language within within the liturgy. So. Um, at the very end where it said, uh, where I want to say, what to say, um, where normally you would hear one God, now and forever, the one was dropped. And this, this note gives the explanation that was sent, uh, uh, sent from Rome on why. Uh, the, the downside is, is that uh, they're not updating the missile uh, for it. Uh, and so it's still in there. So we just have to remember uh, to to not say it, uh, not just during Mass, but during our office, as well as with Holy Hours. You take a pen and... <laughs> we, try, we, we frown on writing in sacred books, but we put a lot of post-its in there. If you come and look at, at the... In fact, I may have it in mind. Uh, when you look, especially in the first canon, there is a... Uh, no, it's not in here. So typically, right now, if you looked, if you looked at any of the missiles, or at least at St. Mary's, St. Leo's, probably St. Tim's too, you'd find a post-it over the top piece because that's used during Easter. And then the bottom piece um, uh, is, is used during the rest of ordinary time and Advent and everything else. Because in the wisdom of Holy Mother Church, whoever put this together, they put the one that is used least at the top of the page when you turn and our eyes continue to say things instead of putting it second with the instruction right beneath it. So um, when the, in 2012, when the new missile came out, there was a lot of stalls and mulligans as the priests, including Bishop Laverde, because I was with him several times, we just kind of went, and started over and went back uh, uh, through the prayer uh, for it, mainly because it's that's just how it's set up. So, uh, as I've said, um, and it is the general consensus for the clergy that the people who put our books together um, are not ordained and never use the books, because uh, if they did, they wouldn't organize them the way that they have uh, for it. 
The worst one yet is currently the right of matrimony. It's just crazy how it's all laid out. My, my favorite though, I've gotten used to it, I just have a lot of stickies. So the ritual for baptism, um, they put all the readings in the back that you have to use during the liturgy. So it makes a lot of sense that you just have to keep flipping through to the different sections to find what you want uh, for it. But um, they're great. It's just how it's laid out uh, for that. So that's the note uh, that's there for you. Um, there are a couple other things I will reference. The one piece, I ran out of ink. I apologize. I had a little handout for all of you on Ad Orientum, which is a great explanation. Um, but um, I will email it to you because it'll be easier. Um, it's, it's fantastic. A number of the parishes, I've given it to a couple parishes, they use it. It's from the Diocese of... Um, it's up in Wisconsin. I forget which one. Definitely not Milwaukee. But... Lacrosse. Uh, La could be lacrosse. So, uh, regardless, uh, it's, it has a great explanation, not only the tradition, but why it's more important that, and why that's the proper, proper um, posture within, within the liturgy. Okay. All right, so um, tonight and next week, we're, uh, the, today may roll over a little into next week. There's just a lot to go through, and this is something that, that most people care the most about because it affects us, you, directly, okay, uh, for that. Um, start off to say, uh, just keep in, in, in your, your mind, with very few exceptions, there is no directive for the particular posture of the lay faithful during liturgies. With very few, uh, with very few exceptions, except for when to stand, when to sit, when to kneel, okay? And even those, um, those are not all consistent across, across the world. Postures and gestures uh, in certain areas within the liturgy are left to the bishop to, uh, to decide. He can change it, okay? Um, he can change it in accordance with what, with what the general instruction of the Roman Missal um, addresses. In the back of the general instruction, there's a section that says U.S. Adaptations. And for ours, that deals with a lot of materials for what you can build churches out of. There's a section on gestures and postures, as well as singing, um, uh, music, and there's another section on, on vestments as well. Uh, so uh, that general instruction covers including what you can build a church out of and the stained glass windows and the like. Okay, um, All of that is, is very uh, regulated. Okay, um, And so some of the stuff that we're going to talk about tonight... Uh, I'll let you know what is common across the world, what's common here in the U.S., what is common here in our diocese. For the most part, uh, the Diocese of Arlington holds strictly to what the general instruction tells us uh, for. Uh, and, and there are some reasons for it. You're going to find out that uh, especially gestures, postures, and actions are highly uh, structured, and, and they are very specifically... Um, detailed uh, through there. Now, the particular book that governs all of it is is a ceremonial of bishops. Um, when in doubt, we, we check the red book, and, and this is what uh, directs it. Funny thing, some of the directions are in the footnotes, so not in the in the main paragraphs. Which is not part of the ceremony of bishops, but but. Footnotes, footnotes for the church are important. 
The other pieces I as I walk through this, please remember that that liturgy, like canon law, is more closely akin to the, the uniform code of military justice and not civil law. The difference being civil law says if it doesn't say you can't do it, you're free to do whatever you want. In canon law and liturgical law, if it doesn't say you can do it, you can't do it. You know, it, it uh, that that's the way uh, the church works. Permission oriented. Right. And if I haven't explicitly given you permission, you, you can't mean, do you it. You can't do it. It does not believe in it's better to ask for forgiveness later than permission. So, yeah. So, when it comes to the liturgy, it's that highly structured. And there's some very good reasons for that, um, which we'll discuss this week, but more next week when we talk about the clergy and investments and everything else. Um, so, the, the latest uh, version of the general instruction of the Roman Missal, or, or the Germ, or the Germ, however you want to say it, um, was released on the first Sunday of Advent in, in 2011. Um, and it really was a direct fruit of, of the council. Uh, there were supposed to be, this is called the third typical edition. You only find the first edition and you won't find the second edition. It was supposed to be released in 1996. But because of translations and infighting um, over, over the wording, it was just chosen to skip. Now, well, why is that important? Well, because there was a lot of consternation when it came out in 2011 and, and pushed to 2012 for the reason that the language jumped from fourth grade English okay, up, to, up to sophomore in college. The grammar structure and, and, and the word usage, and people didn't like that. Um, well, uh, the language for the liturgy is supposed to be elevated anyway. Um, but the problem was there was no stepping stone. The stepping stone in the middle would have been a great, it was supposed to jump it up to about sophomore, junior in high school, and then you make uh, that jump up uh, for it. Uh, the, the issue behind it is, is, is verbiage and, and using a common lexicon. Words have, have very specific meanings, especially within liturgy. It's why we use the word was incarnate, the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, was incarnate. Um, and not born, uh, because in some English countries, born can mean a lot of different things. It does not necessarily, in all English-speaking countries, mean you have a soul that comes with the body. What? All right. So the word incarnate, going back to the more traditional language, is a fixed definition uh, and a fixed word, and so we use that. Okay. So um, there was a lot of there was a lot of preparation, if you might remember. Uh, hopefully you remember, hopefully there was a lot of preparation uh, for the new language coming out um, as, it, as it was shown forth in the Missal. Uh, the challenge was, is that we, uh, the, the liturgy speaks in two different languages. It speaks with, uh, with you know, the voice, but also speaks uh, more eloquently with those particular gestures and postures and actions uh, w uh, within it. Um, uh, by now we know that uh, the translation is not perfect, but much better. Um, we're still making adjustments. So for instance, we've removed one uh, from there. Uh, we are, we are uh, about to go through another uh, revision for the words. So I right here have, uh, have all the new Psalms and the canticles uh, that have already approved for use, but will come out in the new uh, uh, divine office. You'll get a new lectionary the year after. So 
you'll probably have the lectionary in 2024 and the new office in 2023. Uh, for it. Yes. Were the Psalms that we're using right now based on a specific translation of the Bible? And did that change? Does that make sense? Yeah, so um, it's not so much the translation, it's the translators uh, for it. And so, um, so if, you, if you take a look at England, they're using what's called the Grail Psalms. Okay. Um, we are using a different translation, uh, which was an amalgamation between all the English-speaking uh, um, countries through ISIL. Okay. This next version is what's called the Abbey, uh, the, the Abbey Psalms and Canticles. It was done by Benedictines uh, for it and used, used among everybody. Uh, one of the... Uh, uh, let me just give you a, a taste... Um, so, so if you remember the Benedictus, right there at morning prayer, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who's come to his people and set them free. He's raised up for us a mighty Savior, born the house of his servant David. Okay, that's, that's what you know now. Um, this is a much better translation, but it's very different. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited his people and redeemed them. He has raised up for us a horn of salvation in the house of David his servant. As he spoke through the mouth of his holy ones, his prophets from ages past. Now, I've already started, I've been praying with this since like February. And I can tell you, even when I'm looking at it in my mind, I'm still saying the other one. I have to like stop and just like hit the brakes because I've been basically praying the office since 1990. And so I have like 30 plus years of of having the whole thing memorized, and so it's it's it is already messing with my mind. And we're like, it, it's Ugh. an internal soundtrack. Doesn't my husband? Oh, it is. It. <laughs> it is okay. Um, well, uh, some of what we're going to find out now when we look at some of the scripture about the uh, the postures and gestures is that the translation you have now. Part of the confusion is it's a bad translation. The new translation fixes the majority of it. It, it really does uh, for it. Um, yeah. Okay. Does that mean, sorry, does that mean all my Bibles are going to change? Because they talked about having a new official Bible. Does that mean yeah, all that, my Bible versions are no longer... Uh, all the Bible versions eventually will be abrogated and there will be one Catholic version in English. RSVC? Um, no. Uh, it'll, be, it'll, it'll be like the RSVCE. Well, but... Well, that's the problem with the RSVCE. It has horrid cross uh, um, footnotes and cross references. The the New American has has a far richer cross references and notes, even though some of them are bad notes. Yeah, okay. I don't like the um, but the version you hear at mass is not the New American version that you have in your Bibles. It's what's yeah. called New American liturgical. Okay. And so once they get all the the translations. Um, set and fix on it, then you'll have something that matches what you hear in the liturgy for your own personal use. Would you okay. say it's closer to the New American than any other translation, though? What we use in the liturgy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. To be honest, what they did is is it's it's the child of if the RSVCE and the New American got married, um, and so that's where the language language sits. There's just some random stuff that sometimes you're just not. You're just kind of um, part of the things. That, part of one of the other things that they're going to fix is especially during Easter time because you're hearing 
the Gospels during Easter time are from John. Uh, the second Sunday of Easter, where you have the third Sunday, I forget which Sunday. Well, the um, uh, uh, Peter, do you love me? Peace. You go through it, but there's three verses missing between uh, uh, between that interchange before our, our our Lord and Peter, and then Peter being taken off to be to be martyred. In fact, in most of the Bibles, those three verses are missing uh, because the translators didn't know what to do with them at the time. Um, however, in the in the new refresh translations, those three verses will be back in, and it makes a lot more sense uh, when you go through it. It's in the Greek in almost every version of Greek. We found it in Dead Sea Scrolls as well. And so it's being put back in where it belongs. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, one of the cool things that just happened is they found another cave out there at Qumran. Uh, uh, and uh, more of, of the scripture. It's going to rock the entire Protestant world because um, it's a commentary on a lot of the Old Testament uh, for there. With that, one of the main commentaries, uh, words like works of the law, the ergonomu meaning uh, the law that the, uh, the ceremonial law that was abrogated uh, by the new covenant. Um, it's been an argument what those words really meant because they were considered new words. Well, we're now seeing the commentaries and the structure of what they meant because these, uh, these targums are more than 600 years prior to the incarnation of Christ. And wow. so it falls all in line with, with the Essenes, what our Lord, he preached on, and what we see in the Catholic traditional, under, Catholic and Orthodox understanding of Romans, works of the law, ergonomu, and all those kind of key pieces that everybody argues over. So it's, it's a part of study that's, that's up and coming, that's great. Um, however, it has very wide implications. And it was just a headline through the news a couple weeks ago. So I saved that article because it'll be fun one day to reflect back on it. Okay. All right. So um, uh, while the translations are getting better in English, sometimes what we see in the liturgy for the other language that's spoken through the body, all right, um, not so much. Okay. And, uh, and, and it's important. And so that, that, first, that first quote I have for you from the principles of the liturgy, uh, why is it so important uh, that this language is, is expressed through the body as well. Part of the argument that we've heard over the last 50 years is that as long as my internal disposition uh, is right, it doesn't matter what I say, what I do, okay, because internally uh, that's fine. But that's a result of original sin. We're not designed to be able to think one thing and say or do another uh, for it, which is why this quote is great. Far being pure mental prayer. So, so, that's important that the mass is not just mental prayer um and that is a that is a change in the novus ordo all right for the extraordinary form it's more mental prayer for the lay faithful not for the clergy or the servers okay but far being from pure mental prayer the liturgy is expressed orally we know that and takes shape in bodily postures and gestures these moreover are not led to the spontaneous invention of the individual but are determined by constant laws. Here are the word rubrics there. The reason for this characteristics of the liturgy is that Revelation teaches us not to separate body and soul, 
but to recognize the unity of the human composite as God created it and is now saving it. Not only does the liturgy teach us about that salvific moment, not only does it call us into communion, it's meant to, to reintegrate the human person through not only voice, but also through the body, through these gestures. Uh, and and, and it's, a great, it's a great piece to understand. So uh, in order to understand that, we probably should go back who set a great foundation for us out of John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Just for clarification for those who don't know, um, all, those, all those audiences that the Holy Father did, the 119 audiences, they were all written before he became Pope. He literally was about to publish um, a book with all of it in there. And then they elected him Pope, and it was like, well, hmm. They're like, hey, Holy Father, you need to do Wednesday catechetical audiences. And he was like, got it. Oh, you have to do all this. Not a whole lot of time. Well, you have to do the Wednesday audiences. Do you know what you're doing? Let me get back to you. What he did is he took his book, broke it up into audiences. It was already written. He just had to work it for each audience and, and just uh, went through uh, that whole piece. So literally, all was written before he ever, uh, he ever became Pope uh, for it. Um, and he had been teaching this as part of his marriage prep. Uh, when he did marriage prep, he took couples. He didn't do marriage prep in the church. He took a group out camping, took them to the mountains away from everything, particularly, as he said, away from electronics, the phone, um, and, and what, the new invention of the TV uh, and the radio. Ooh, now look where we are. Um, he took them away, and what he did, if you've ever read Love and Responsibility, which is their philosophical precursor to it, he discussed all that with them. That's what his marriage prep was. Getting them to understand it. And it was a weekend of just gathering them all together. One of the things that he was doing was combating, particularly the German heresies that had come in of Sartre, of Descartes, of, um, uh, uh, I don't know, of Kant, okay, um, that were very popular and had finally taken a foothold in the Catholic Church starting in the mid-40s and just continuing to, to bold over us, uh, over us. Even now, that whole personalism of me and my feelings are the most important, that is the natural conclusion and fruit of Kantian philosophy, as well as the moral uh, permissiveness uh, from that. It is a natural fruit, because for Kant and for Descartes and for Sartre, uh, Sartre and Kant in the 20th century, um, the, the nuptial gift that, that marital act, um, even outside of marriage, was a utilitarian act, not an expression of the person, particularly in the covenant of love called matrimony. Um, so, so all of this that we're battling, the liturgy, in a very systematic way, looks to reteach us uh, for it. And that's, uh, so um, here's what I love uh, as he talks here. Um, the fact that uh, the theology also includes the body should not astonish or surprise anyone who is conscious of the mystery and reality of the, the incarnation. Through the fact that the word of God became flesh, the body entered theology, that is, the science that has divinity for its object, I would say, through the main door. The incarnation um, and the redemption that flows from it has also become the definitive source of sacramentality of marriage. What he's saying is that because of the incarnation, the body is part of the highest science, which is theology. All other sciences work towards theology. They are lesser why, because without theology, you can't have any of the other sciences. 
that's a whole different discussion, but we're just going to take that as a premise uh, just because we have to get through things. But um, the, the body, when everybody says, my body, my choice, actually no. Because of the incarnation, um, uh, his body, his choice, he created it. He came up with the instruction book. Therefore, he determines the best way that it can function. Nobody uses a, a cell phone for a water ski, although on YouTube you can see it done. And it can be slightly effective. It just no longer works as a cell phone afterward. All right. Um, it, it's not being used for what it was designed. More importantly here, and this is so important for the liturgy, the body and it alone is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. It was created to transfer into the visible reality of the world the mystery hidden since time immemorial in God and thus to be a sign of it which naturally flows into the fact that it's only the body that's, uh, that's able to express love and that gift of love. And more importantly, it's through that gift of love that the full meaning of humanity's existence is revealed and made known. Part of that mystery that we talk about, remember when we use the word mystery, we're not saying something that can't be understood. It's something that cannot be fully understood. There's something to be known. We just can't know everything about it. Um, and that's really important when we understand it. You should also understand that very early in the church, understanding that mystery and that actually close to that particular definition, mystery and sacrament were interchangeable. So the, the document Mysterium Fide, which is on the Eucharist, okay, the mystery of faith, you say that in the Mass, okay, or in Ephesians where it says, marriage is such a great mystery. Usually gets a chuckle in Mass, but the, the, the more appropriate... English-American understanding for the translation would be marriage is such a great sacrament because mystery and sacrament are, are interchangeable for it. In fact, in the entire Eastern Church, they don't use that Latin word sacramentum or oath. They use the word the mysteries. What are you receiving? Oh, they're being chrismated into what? The mysteries. Baptism, uh, confirmation, first Eucharist uh, for it. So every time you hear mystery, that dual meaning inside your head uh, so that you can understand what's, uh, what's being said at the same time. Um, this, physicality, uh, this physical expression of the vocabulary, Mother uh, Church calls um, postures and gestures. Um, and she trains us, she trains us to use them and to express them in worship, uh, which is solely due to the Holy Trinity. The actions during Mass are very important. Because they're not just actions uh, for us to do. Um, they're an expression of the love of the body of Christ to the Father. Remember, Mass is the Mass offered by Christ to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. So whether we're feeling it that day, whether we like it, know it, or believe it, those, those, those dictated gestures and postures literally force our body to give that glory even when we don't want to give it ourselves. It is a fail-safe to ensure that we're worshiping. It's why it's great um, that sometimes there's a there's a a great mystery. There's a great mystery. She showed up and I was like, "Where's the baby?" <laughs> She's moving real quick and sitting down. I was like, "Wait, she just had Miriam." Uh, there's there's a great mystery and a beauty in the fact that sometimes we do actions. Um, uh, by rote, 
Okay. The downside of it is, is a lot of times we forget what we're doing and why we're doing it when we do it. Um, I will tell you right now for the clergy, it's very difficult for us to pray the mass for probably the first two months after we're ordained because we are working so hard on the gestures and the actions and the timing. I mean, you have to understand, uh, for those who are at St. Leo's, each one of the priests, their cadence, if you listen to them, is different. And, and, and when they go to do something, it's different. So you have to have as a deacon in your head the, the three different styles of the priest so you know what you're doing, when you're doing it, and, and, and how. And the timing is different. Um, Father Christensen, who's now the pastor over at St. Rita's, um, that, that time right before I would take off the pall before the great amen, he would speed up. And so I would have to literally start walking a line before he gets to that regular uh, place within the Roman canon before I would go and remove that pall. Otherwise, everything's going to be lagging behind, and there's nothing worse if there's not a smooth transition and it looks like it's, it's going smoothly. You can even watch me correct, depending on, on the day that the priest is, whether they're going faster or slower, correct his timing for it. Because sometimes I'll just take the paw and go straight over. Other times you'll see me come all the way around. If you see me going all the way around, he is slowed down from his normal cadence. And I am basically killing time with me being there those two or three seconds before he goes to hand that chalice to me. So, <clears throat> I have a question about, um, so C.S. Lewis once stopped praying because he didn't feel that he was being like present enough in his prayers, right? And so we shouldn't do that. And then we talk about the first intention, particularly in personal prayer. Where is that in the liturgy in the sense that, yes, we want to concentrate, especially when we're communicating this to other people like high school students, we want to concentrate on what we're doing but then we also don't want to get distracted and do go into the you know wheel of like I'm not concentrating enough, I'm not concentrating enough, such, such, such. Part of that is the ebb and flow that comes from the liturgy to private prayer. I mean, notice you started with private prayer, mm -hmm. okay? But that's secondary. Liturgical prayer is always greater than private prayer. And so um, the benefit of the liturgy is that if, if, if you're distracted uh, today, well, that's what everybody else is in the room for to make up that faith where you are. Um, uh, yes, uh, there is that supposed to be that unity and gesture and then voice um, that should be happening during the liturgy. Uh, but there's some days that you're just you're just out of it, um, and that's just it happens. Uh, however, uh, it's it's the training of bringing our minds back, which is fortified through personal prayer. What's the point of personal prayer? Not just holiness, but to prepare you for mass. So that you're single-hearted, single-minded when you walk into that liturgy. I was just going to say, for me, it was the charismatic prayer group. Because it got me to understand the spiritual side of the Mass better. Mm -hmm. And then you, and then it made natural sense to marry that to the Mass. Because, yeah, you get so, like, stand up, sit down, not thinking, daydreaming, you know, in the Mass as a kid. Charismatics taught me how to praise and worship and I didn't have the crutch of the mass of all the gestures, but then it just made, when you put it back to the mass, it made the mass so much more for me. That, it, I just found that for me, that was a phenomenal lesson to have been for a couple of years there because it's made my, my massive focus yeah. and, and it's just, that may just be my temperament in the way no. I No, it's just hard for all of us. Um, fun fact. Um, in the churches in entirety, um, 
Uh, were there charismatic prayer groups in the early church? Wasn't the whole thing? <laughs> it was called the Mass. So, until uh, the 9th century, especially in the Eastern Church, what you would call a charismatic prayer meeting um, uh, was the liturgy inside. There's where you would have the Gloria, you'd have after the elevation uh, during, during that, those particular times. Uh, in the Western Church, it was about the 5th or 6th century, mainly because of Montanus, who, he's a fun figure. We can talk about him at a different time. But suffice, suffice it to say, you will always get suppressed by the hierarchy if you tell the bishop that he's not anointed to be the bishop or he's illegitimate because he doesn't speak in tongues. That is not going to go over well. Oh, the other part was he believed he, incar- he was the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. That also didn't go over well uh, so much. <laughs> So, yes, I mean, it was a bold move, okay? Let's be honest. It was bold. If you're going to go, go for the gold. However, that didn't turn out so well. Okay, so, um, so the, uh, what do we use as liturgical signs of unity within the liturgy? And that is the common gesture and posture that we find. Um, gestures reveal your inner disposition, whether you like it or believe it. Um, and, and we've talked about this before. Um, they're the inner disposition of who we are and what we believe. Ergo, the ancient uh, maxim, lex uh, orandi, uh, lex credendi, lex vivendi. The law of prayers, the law of belief, which is the law of life. Um, every individual is an embodied spirit uh, through which the soul expresses itself. And the gestures during the liturgy provide the opportunity for the Christian to express one's love uh, for the Father in the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. Not only do we give witness to what we believe, but it causes us to express it regardless of how we feel, as I've already mentioned. Um, that's why uh, Pope Benedict goes on to say in his Spirit of the Liturgy, without worship, the bodily gesture would be meaningless, while the spiritual act must, of its very nature, express itself in bodily gesture. When someone tries to take worship back into a purely spiritual realm and refuses to give it an embodied form, the act of worship evaporates, for what is purely spiritual is inappropriate to the nature of man. Because we have a body. By the way, postures and gestures include clothing. Postures and gestures include clothing. Um, uh, just, as the, just as the clergy vest for Mass, so do the laity. It used to be that they all vested in white albs, but those white albs became red real quick because anybody who wore white albs on the Lord's Day ended up getting martyred. So they just don't bring your white alb. We'll let the clergy do that uh, for it. Um, so so um, that is part of the expression. The catechism speaks, still speaks of that, but I didn't put it in your notes, so I apologize. Um, so unfortunately, with with the transition from what we now call the extraordinary form to the Novus Ordo and through all the kind of tribulations of the last 50 years of trying to get the mass right, uh, okay, and especially working on the language because we typically learn, uh, work on verbiage first, the gestures in, in many ways have been long forgotten. Um, and uh, it's why in the, the, the Gurm it says that the gestures and bodily posture of both the priest and the deacon, the ministers, and also... This is important because this is new after the council and also of the people must be conducive to making the entire celebration resplendent with beauty and noble simplicity. 
to make uh, to making clear the true and full meaning of its different parts and to the fostering of the partic participation of all. I like you to take a pen or whatever and cross through noble uh, simplicity. Cross through it or cross through those two words and replace it with either resplendent with nobility or simply noble. That's the the more correct translation of it. The, the um, in fact the the word for uh, for um, simplicity is the word for fire in Latin. So resplendent, glowing with nobility. Okay. Uh, um, at the end of it, it says in the fostering the participation of all. You know, it's really important because participation, especially within the liturgy, is not understood by what the word participation means. Uh, really, at the core, um, you know, uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is this quote from the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, uh, talks about uh, that full active and conscious participation. What that does not mean is that we need more people doing something. Participation in its root of the language means knowing your part. What's your part you're supposed to play during the liturgy? Because remember, prior to Novus Ordo, for, for a thousand years, you were excluded, and your, your, your baptismal priesthood, the common priesthood of the, of the lay faithful, was ignored. You didn't have a part to play in Mass except showing up to watch it. We didn't even get to say crucify him on <laughs> Palm Sunday? <laughs> no, I, no, because remember, you didn't get Palm Sunday till 1950s. That's the part you go for. Well, no, I wouldn't remember that because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't study know the whole church story you guys. I didn't know that. What's so, the story on that? Well, so um, the, the Holy Week, the, the, the Holy Week, uh, the Holy Week services, as you know them now, were reserved for the clergy. So, um, there were there were four of the lady, like especially starting the three hundreds to the eight hundreds. <laughs> in our parish, not even the clergy had them. So um, to the eight hundreds, and then after the eight hundreds, you really didn't see them. Um, you uh, they weren't even used among the clergy. Around the sixteen hundreds, the clergy uh, were sort of permitted to start doing those services, basically in secret. Okay, and then they were uh, started to be restored. Uh, uh, early in the 30s and then made it um, universal 50s and then the version that you see now came after the Novus Ordo. But, did so, we have Lent? You did have Lent. Um, now, for the, now Lent was celebrated very differently um, for almost a thousand years because Lent for us also included no dairy, no meat, and no sex. Um, and so Great Lent, um, which we also celebrated, goes from the Triumph of the Cross, so the day after, which is Our Lady of Sorrows, which is the 15th of, of September, through Easter. Easter. Wow. So what if a baby was born like nine months after any time in that period? Was it like shame? Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, so many birthdays so close together. That's a large portion of the I seem to remember that the military were excluded from that at some point in time. Because I don't know. Shane babies. <laughs> Did you hear me? <laughs> He's a great left baby. <laughs> Shame. Shun that baby. Um so so just to give you a little more insight, the the term active participation. Um 
began over 100 years ago. It was actually St. Pius X who coined his 1903 letter on sacred music. Sacred, because remember, you weren't allowed to sing. Wait, from what time period were you not allowed to sing? Prior to 1903? Probably were. Ever? I, I wasn't alive in 1903, so I can't, you know. <laughs> when you say so you no weren't allowed to sing. I would have never yeah. said you that said, you were that old. When you old. said remember, you weren't allowed to sing. I'm like, how am I going to remember something about alive See, it, it wasn't for you, it was for everybody else who I gave a chronology the first week. Oh, that okay. mentioned all of that. <laughs> okay. Which, by the way, you got the chronology too. So, it was in your folder. I you skimmed it. It's okay. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, there was a time period that, that you were not allowed to sing. And the servers did all of the, the, the responses for you, including the singing. However, the church had already moved in the late 1800s. So, the reform of the liturgy has nothing to do with the 1960s. The reform of the liturgy started in the early 1800s. It was already going through Europe. It was already in the vernacular 120 years before the U.S. started using the vernacular. So do not get caught up in the myth and, and the exaggerated lies of it was the 60s that put the Mass in the vernacular. No. It was already in the vernacular all over the world. We were one of the holdouts. My question is, like, in the early church even, did the congregation do any singing? Um, they did. Okay. So that's why... So... Once we hit, once we hit the reform of, of Gregory the Great, okay, and and as we keep moving through, can you give us a year. Uh, Eleven hundred. Okay. 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 And so, so uh, the liturgy as it gets formed, you're still participating, but then what happens is all these liturgies break and they become very uh, cultural. Yeah. So you have the uh, the the Carolinian liturgies, you have the Galatian liturgies, all these various which are based on on regional types, okay. So the liturgy was universal insofar as the structure was pretty much the same. The words of institution were the same, um, but, but they had been adapted to that local region, especially within the customs and local regions you didn't sing. So for instance, um, uh, one piece that still holds in the Eastern Church, uh, women do nothing in the liturgy for the Eastern Church. That includes washing any of the linens. Mm -hmm. That is reserved to them in none of the singing. There are no female cantors. There are no servers. In fact, in some of the rites, there is a still an iconostasis, a second one, where the women don't go, go past. Mm -hmm. they, they keep them like the old Jews. Right. Like okay. the or something? And then in uh, one of the Ethiopian rites, all the men are on one side, all the, all the women are on the other side, and children below the age of seven. Are they allowed to work for the church? Who? Uh, the, the, the women? The yeah. women? No, actually. Mm -hmm. No. Not at St. Sophia's and Constantine. No. There's no women that work there. No. Well, that it, would probably provide too much temptation for all the men running around. No, it's, it's just a very different theology yeah. for it. Um, regardless, okay. So, um, the cantors are all men. Yeah, all of them. So, 1903, with uh, his uh, sacred letter on uh, music, he called for the active participation in most holy mysteries and in the public and solemn prayer of the church by the faithful. Um, what he was going for at that first is, is he was telling the lady, you know, it's okay to sing. You, you should at least sing. Sing uh, for it. Okay, and that's in paragraph three. Uh, and so, um, for this reason, the faithful, it goes on to say, should be catechized in the church's norms. 
not only to foster the beauty of the liturgy, but also as a sign of unity among the faithful. In the uh, 42nd paragraph of the general instruction, it is a common bodily posture to be observed by all those taking part is a sign of unity of the members of the Christian community gathered together for the sacred liturgy, for it expresses the intentions and the spiritual attitude of the participants and also fosters them. That's not just in bodily actions, but in voice. You're supposed to be saying the, the prayers with the celebrant. Many times um, you'll find that Father and I are saying the prayers at a different speed, not because we're slow, but because there is disunity in the body of Christ because the bride refuses to, to, um, to work with her husband, the bridegroom. Our Father, if I'm saying Our Father, who art in heaven, you're already hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and speeding through. Okay. It's why in Psalm 103 it starts off, this, it is good for the brothers to dwell in unity, which includes a voice. Whoever the celebrant is, he dictates the speed and the cadence. You don't get to choose it. Tell that to all the little ladies in the back of the church. Also, Nick. I was just going to say, also, Nick. Nick. <laughs> One of my sisters is always looking ahead. So, 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 there's if the churches if the churches go rightly, and I tell this to the teens, especially when we're praying night prayer, because I prayed at a very specific speed. When I am praying, uh, so for instance, um, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord; my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I'm doing it at that particular speed in the church because I've attuned it to the echo inside the church. Why? Not so it doesn't cancel out, okay? But the echo and the diminishing sound that you hear is supposed to remind you that that prayer not only echoes into eternity, but out of eternity, that voice that you hear that's a little strange and you can't, you can hear some of it but not all of it, is supposed to be that symbol of the saints praying with us at that time. It extends the body of Christ within those liturgical actions that we understand that we're not alone, that the liturgy is much larger than us, and we're not there at that spot. Even within the divine office, we're not there. We're not there. We are, we are within uh, the angelic host in heaven, and in that, that eternal antiphon, that exchange of prayer, going back and forth. Um, and so... Let's get down, down and dirty. Ready? Let's start with standing. Uh, standing is the most common uh, gesture and the principal posture for the laity and the clergy during the liturgy. Okay? Um, I've given you, I think I chose, oh, Exodus 33. Yeah. I showed you at, at Exodus 33. Um, and so right there where it says, whenever Moses went out to the tent... All the people rose up. Okay, this section of of scripture right there in in, in uh, Exodus thirty three harkens back to Exodus nineteen, where the Lord swore that if you would come and stand at at the tent each morning, He swore He would speak to you. It's the only place in scripture where where the Lord says, "I swear I will speak to you." I wear morning prayer. That's why morning and evening it's actually the Todah sacrifice. All right, that we're talking about here, which, by the way, um, that's what our Lord used during his Passover, okay? Because it does require a lamb. One in the morning, one in the evening, no substitutions. 
The Passover sacrifice, if you don't have a lamb, you can use a bull or something else. As I said the last time, that's my only kind of little gripe with Dr. Hahn uh, for it. He doesn't explain that a little more um, and connect those two sacrifices together uh, for it. I also gave to you uh, right there at um, Sirach 50. Um, and so it also shows uh, for the priest, uh, from the hands of the priest as he stood by the hearth of the altar with the garland of the brethren around him. Okay, And, and it's emphasized by saying there, like a young cedar on Lebanon. Cedars, very hard wood. Young, very straight. Okay, deep roots. Okay, uh, so all of those theirs are about the priesthood. The first was about the entire uh, uh, community and then uh, particularly about the priest. Uh, so um, what we find out uh, that is that standing is that principal uh, gesture that shows respect and honor for the person they stand before. It's that gesture of reverence. Standing and kneeling are always made synonymous with uh, about reverence. We're going to get to kneeling. Kneeling is not, it is not the gesture for reverence. Okay? Submission. It is. Okay. Um, here's, here's what it's meant to display. It's, it's to show the new dignity we have in Christ, the liberty of the children of God, freedom from slavery and sin through baptism, and our participation in the resurrection. It's why in the second Eucharistic prayer it says, quote, We thank you for counting us worthy to stand before you and serve you. It's right there in the Eucharistic prayer. A lot of times we, we miss it, to stand there uh, before you and serve you. Um, standing, therefore, is that, uh, that gesture of vigilance and action, revealing the respect of the servant in attendance and of the soldier on duty. Um, that traditional posture of prayer we... Uh, inherited from the Jews. Um, during the liturgy, we stand uh, to show our reverence and attentions for and to the Blessed Trinity. So, why do we... Oh, explain we'll get to that. Okay. Um, from antiquity, antiqu antiquity, standing was a sign of respect to a king or an important person. One is also reminded of the soldier who stands at attentions before the king of kings, the lord of lords, and that we find. Um, Council of Nicaea, 325. Uh, important canon, canon 20. On Sundays and during the Paschal season, prayer should be said standing. So much so that it says, may you be anathema sit if you kneel on the Lord's Day. In other words, may you be condemned to hell if on the Lord's Day. On the Lord's Day? On the Lord's Day. So okay. During, hold on. We're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> we gotta wait. And that's all we have for today. Done. <laughs> okay. Notice, um, so it goes on to say it's a posture of, why? Because it's the posture of a victor, especially during the Easter season, okay? Now, you're going to find out that there was kneeling. There was kneeling in the early church. Um, most of it was not during the liturgy, all right? Most of it was not during the liturgy. Um, but it did come into the liturgy as the liturgy um, developed uh, for it. Uh, we find Jesus mentioning standing in prayer three times, okay? I think I gave you um, all three of those times. Uh, the first was uh, in Matthew 6. Uh, it shows uh, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray. Standing was not the hypocritical piece. All right, It was the, the need for drawing attention. Everybody was standing in prayer. Everybody stood in the temple to pray. There was no other gesture to pray. Remembering pews are a Protestant um, contribution. 
actually it's an American Protestant contribution to the church. They, they didn't exist prior to the 16th century and here in the U.S., not prior to the 1860s in all the churches. Okay, you stood. All right. Um, you also find there um, in Luke, um, when our Lord uh, uh, looks at them, this is in the agony of the garden, it says, why do you sleep? Rise and pray. Notice he didn't say, kneel and beg. He said, rise and pray. Why? Come into the temptation. Standing, the posture of victory. The posture of victory. We also find, um, did I use that one too? Yeah. Uh, we also find uh, right there for Stephen, while he may have been kneeling right as he was being martyred, it says that uh, our Lord was standing uh, next to the very throne of God the Father. Why? The position of victory. He is, he is victorious over the sting of death uh, and sin. And so he stands at the right hand of the Father uh, for it. Okay. Uh, yeah, so standing is the default position during the liturgy and the position of jubilant prayer. Remember, it's, it's supposed to make you attentive to what's being said or, or what's being done before the throne of grace. We typically stand, we always stand for the gospel, whether it's in, whether it's in the divine liturgy or the divine office. Even in the office, the rubrics are you stand at the, at the gospel canticle uh, for it. Um, so and when you, you're saying morning prayer, you stand? Yeah. Oh. Evening prayer. The, the, the gospel and through the intercessions because you stand in supplication. Even, even that liturgy has very specific rubrics for it. To be honest, um, you're not required to follow them so closely because you're not clergy. So... Um, and, I mean, you and, have to stand every time you read the gospel. <laughs> Period. <laughs> just even no private study. For who? The lady or the clergy? For the lady, there is. Yeah. I mean, again, because that's devotional, so it's not as as um, as bad as it sounds. Devotions aren't really regulated so much, except for. Um, when John Paul II put out in 2001 uh, that proper uh, the guide on popular devotion the blue book it's here somewhere popular, the director of popular devotion of the liturgy and one of the things it talks about it's right here this is all the, the approved devotions for the church and it says that one of its jobs is to harmonize the liturgy to popular piety because one informs the other. Liturgy informs it. Um, that's why you hear the doxology in, in um, the office is different from the doxology you pray during the rosary. What's the correct one? The liturgy. Why don't we, uh, why don't we correct the... Uh, the rosary piece, because it's popular devotion, frankly, the church doesn't care that much. Um, it's close enough. Court. Come in. He did. And we're, we're going to talk about that in a second. So. He was submitting himself to the will of the Father. He was. I'm guessing. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. So, hello, Father Jonathan. Okay, so um, going from the standing, let's talk about a particular type of standing, which is ad orientum, facing the east. All right. 
Well, Adorantum is is facing um, east, which liturgical east would be everybody's facing the same direction. Okay. Okay. Because that was. I thought they okay. I guess I'm thinking the Jewish. Weren't the Jewish, wasn't the temple facing the west? Because we were thrown out of the east. Well, doesn't it depend on where you are in the world? Which way is. Well, I mean, I guess you're. Theoretically, the church should be facing east, but. Bonji, give me a second. I might be able to explain this. So the orientation of prayer um, is particular toward the direction of the rising of the sun, okay? Um, which was extremely common, not just in Judaism and early Christianity, but actually in all pagan rites, um, especially those who worshipped the sun god. Um, the Jews turned towards the temple in Jerusalem when they prayed. You can see that in, in uh, Daniel 6.11, which I did put there, where it says, uh, Then the men came by agreement, and Daniel... Uh, making petition and supplication before his God. I forgot to put the scripture before that. It says he turned towards uh, Jerusalem, which was out his window. All right. Um, now the direction, the direction for that towards the temple, it could be east, west, or whatever, depending where you are in the world. The point of it is he turned towards where the presence of the Lord was. For us, for us, okay, is not the temple per se. If you're in the church, it's towards the tabernacle, towards the altar, um, which used to be, um, which used to be, that's for you actually, which used to be um, uh, east. Now we talk what's liturgical east, okay? And so wherever the altar is, that's the eastern, uh, the eastern part. In my house, because I'm one of those geeks, all the crosses in the house are on the eastern walls. So, yeah, so they're all behind us on, on that side uh, for us. Because I'm weird, it's it's fine. Uh, it's for a lot of it does. So it does. You just put one on every wall. I don't have one on every wall because that's a little weird. Now, Father Mosman, <laughs> on the other hand, Father Mosman, Father Mosman, like every, 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 all the walls in all his walls. his he collects them. So yes. he literally has wallpapered his walls that's with crosses slash crucifixes. Okay. Um, so in adopting the custom. Uh, of this, Christians gave it a, a number of new meanings. Uh, so the sun was adopted, uh, was a symbol of the light that is Christ, which is symbolized, especially during the Paschal candle, the light of Christ. Okay, That's why during the Easter vigil and during the Easter, the octave of Easter, it, it is incensed. Okay? Um, in fact, uh, incense goes before it, and then it's, then it's the Paschal candle, um, and then it's the cross. Uh, for it. Uh, remembering there, as Don and I were talking in the beginning, uh, pillar of fire by day, nope, pillar of smoke by day, pillar of fire, fire by, by night. night. You have that, that Exodus, that view of Exodus, and a procession through the desert in the darkness um, uh, for, uh, during the Easter vigil. So it, the incense is the, is the smoke by day, uh, smoke by day right. and then Correct. The, the, the candle, candle is, is the fire at night. Correct. And so there's that procession, that wandering through the desert. Then there's that coming for you to hear the word of God because where did it lead, the, to, uh, where did it lead them? To hear those 10 words first. And we'll talk about that in a second too. Um, uh, the East also, uh, we can think of the son of justice that um, he ascended to heaven in the East and is expected to return there. Uh, we can see that in Matthew 24, 27, which are 
think I gave you. Yes. Yeah, I did. So, right there, second page. Okay. Um, for that, um, the Garden of Paradise, Genesis says, was located in the east. Okay. Um, the practice remained largely eastern, um, and it gained, uh, gained that temporary acceptance in the west, uh, especially in the Byzantine and Galatian rites, where even in private prayer, everybody turned towards the east uh, uh, to pray. Uh, liturgically, there was more of a there was more of a um, uh, a unified tradition uh, that was there. Um, the custom of celebrants uh, facing this direction um, has fallen in disuse. So if you hear ad orientum, okay, that is that is everybody facing the same direction because it's supposed to show show procession uh, through the cross to eternal glory. All right. Um, and it, it better symbolizes what is going on within the liturgy for the reason that we are a mediator-based religion, one sacrifices for all, okay? And that, that the, the priest, the bridegroom, is leading the bride to that glory, to that promised land, standing ahead to protect, to be watchful, to look and to ensure that they don't fall into those dangers. The Virtus Populi, which is the priest facing, the clergy facing um, the people, is more of an innovation uh, since, uh, since the council. Um, part of it is um, bad uh, archeology. span So the archeology span that stands behind it is they said, oh, he sat at table. They reclined the table, which is true. But when they thought that, they were thinking in the modern sense that everybody comes and sits around a table but the ancient tables were in the form of a C. No one was ever facing each other when they reclined a table, even in the ancient world. It was a C, and everyone was facing in one direction uh, for it. So sometimes bad archaeology comes in and, and creeps away. The same thing as I think I mentioned it last week about Abba. Okay? Abba. Fantastic, beautiful, heart-wrenching daddy, which it has never meant except from the 1950s, okay? Because of, because of bad archaeology and bad linguistics and epistemology uh, for it. So um, when you read through the general instruction of the Roman Missal, it presumes ad orientum. So it's always hard for the clergy when we're getting ready for uh, the, the Holy Week liturgies because we only do them once a year. And unless you're a geek or an MC. Um, you have to look it up every year, and sometimes you forget that you have to flip everything when you're positioning everybody in there because it presumes that you're facing the ad orientum, and so now you have to reverse everything because you're you're facing versus. Why did you give you the diagram? I'm sorry. That's why you gave us the diagram, so we knew. There is a reason why I gave you the diagram. That way, it's like Holy Week liturgy for dummies. So Thank you. Uh, no, it it it, no, it, 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 it's, it. Well, no, wait, wait, it's it's hard. No, 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 no. When I was the liturgist at St. Mary's, he just gave me the diagram, and I followed the diagram. The churches I've served, served it's, it's 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 like, it's easy. I just gave so them the diagram. This is the diagram. Yeah. So, and they'd be like, "Oh, thanks." Um, I'm like, "You can thank Deacon." Well, but because it's hard, and and when you're sitting there, you you have to kind of think because if you're following the rubrics, the directions yeah. quickly. You, you don't, sometimes you forget to switch things, which is why it's good to have an MC during those high, uh, those major high liturgies so that as a celebrant, 
you don't have to think. Someone's doing the thinking for you and making sure that, that, you're, that you're there, okay? Um, so that's, uh, let's move on uh, from the standing at orientum over to kneeling, okay? Uh, kneeling is that proper posture and sign of humility and therefore worship. So here's where people get it confused. Kneeling is equal to reverence because it's worship. That, 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 those are two very different terms. Worship comes from the Old English uh, word worth-ship. In other words, you're, you're showing the worth of that which you are before. Okay? That, that, that's not what reverence, uh, uh, reverence is. Okay? Uh, worship. Reverence is akin to adoration. All right. Worship is a little different. Okay. Um, kneeling is a, that sign of humility uh, for it. And so we see it actually best in Isaiah 6. Isaiah comes into the presence of the God. Uh, the angels speak and he falls to his knees, it shows. It's driven to the, uh, he's driven to the ground as the temple shakes at the very presence of God. What happens next? Do you remember? There's a reason I didn't put it on your sheet. What happens well, next? And they lift him up and burn his lips with a... Yes, but why? Because he says, I'm unclean lips. I'm a man of unclean lips. lips. Okay. How do you worship? With, with the words and, and, and the, bod- uh, uh, the bodily gesture. Okay. So they burnt his lips to make them clean for worship. Okay. Uh, for, that, for that eternal liturgy. By the way... Anytime in the, in the Old Testament, and even for our Lord, when the skies open up and they see into the throne of God, every time it's the liturgy. They see the eternal liturgy going on. The question is, what part of the liturgy is going on? When our Lord, the heavens open up, um, there while he's in the Jordan, what part of that liturgy was he seeing? Well, it was the liturgy of that uh, divine filiation, that the Son of God is there upon that throne. And so, so once you start to understand what they're seeing in the liturgy, the actions that flow from it and to it, and even the temptations that the enemy, because the enemy goes to undo everything that our Lord has just seen in those, what we call those temptations of the desert, they're directly related to the liturgy that he sees in heaven. So, so just remember in the Old Testament, when you, heavens open up and they're seeing something, the question is, what part of the liturgy are they seeing? Okay, what part of the liturgy they're seeing? So, um, for in the Old Testament, it was an instinctive practice of kneeling um, at prayer. Okay, you can see that in First Kings um, eight, and also in Daniel six eleven. Um, which one did I put here for you? I did put in there. So now, as Solomon finished uh, offering all this prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose uh, from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with his hands outstretched towards heaven. Not only was he kneeling, but how was his arms? Where were his arms? Out. Out. Cruciform. That that piece where we talked about um, the standing, the piece I didn't mention to you, because I mentioned a little later, and especially next week, is not only was standing the particular posture for prayer for the Jews, it was a cruciform posture of prayer, which we're going to talk about orons, okay, um, but which is reserved for the, the priest within our liturgy. 
but during the ancient liturgy um, for the Jews, uh, their worship included a cruciform, that typology of prayer, as we move towards... As they were standing or as they were kneeling? As they were so, standing. So they were standing there like this? They were standing. The yeah. whole time like this or like at certain times? Uh, when the Psalms were not being chanted, they were standing like that as they were praying. So, so when you hear about the tax collector, when you hear about the, the tax collector until he bows, you should have in your head that he was standing, arms extended uh, for it. So, so, St. Basil, here's a, a great little line that, that he says that I hope I put in here, which I didn't. Um, he goes on to say, he says that to kneel is to show by our actions that sin has cast us to the ground. That sin has cast us to the ground. Kneeling is, is that particular posture of awareness of our frailty and sin. So is that why we kneel during the Eucharistic prayer? Uh, part of it, yes. Why would we kneel after we receive the Lord then? Why would you kneel after you receive the Lord? Because it is your choice. But, but, but gestures-wise. I mean, like, <clears throat> take out that it's an American thing that, that happened already, which we talked about, right? Gestures-wise, it would not make sense outside of the fact that we already do it. Sure, it could make sense. Let's say that you have received unworthily. Mm. So then, yeah. You'd be, pushed, you'd be pushed to your knees. You should be at your knees. Actually, when we talk about prostration, that would be the better posture. Right, okay? right. But again, um, the, assuming we the, the yeah, but but still, you know, part of the movement, um, it's why Cardinal Renze, then the prefect for the Congregation of Divine Worship, put out the what's called a liturgical note. Okay, that liturgical note that goes on to to talk about the church does not regulate the particular posture of the lay faithful after they receive communion. And it doesn't break the sign of unity. No, it does not, because it's one of the few moments, because what it is akin to is the afterglow of the marital act. Mm -hmm. And so um, what the Lord moves with you, in fact, um, in one place uh, in the Missal, in, before the retranslation and the reissuing in 2012, it talked about, um, it talked about uh, the awareness not just with listening to the word of God, but also after communion, so that you do not miss the unction of the Holy Spirit and this movement within you. Okay. Um, and, and the directing, directing of the heart uh, for it. Follow-up question. Um, and I, you might talk about this later, but talking about that sign of unity, specifically with gestures, mm -hmm. like say we're not in Arlington Diocese, or, you know, for example, in my home diocese in Richmond, and they're not doing what is like they're supposed to be doing for a specific gesture during the mass do we for to maintain the sign of unity do we do what they're doing do you know what i mean because i've seen so, people like kneel you know during the eucharistic prayer when no one's kneeling everyone's saying right. et etc et right so um bishop nestle put out those directives mm -hmm. for the entire di diocese right um you you follow what the lord bishop says of that specific diocese that diocese yeah, I think, yeah. How do we know? Yeah, like, just like traveling and stuff You like can that. Google it. Every diocese has has all that on their website. We do, too. Right. It is a seven is a 27-page document on our website. So if you're in Mass, though, right, and no one's kneeling around you, do you kneel? You know what I mean? 
Hmm? It's easy for you because you do like detail. Just do whatever the bishop says. But what if you're in mass that you're not going to Google it? Yeah, but prior proper planning prevents poor performance. <laughs> I'm sweet well, for that. So before I my friend's wedding in Florida. I would say do your best. Here's, here's the follow-up question. is like, okay, so you prior plan, you see what their bishop says, but the whole parish is disobeying. Do you then be the dude who stands out? You know what I mean? You could. I mean, so uh, there's a reason why when I go down to the Outer Banks, I make sure I walk in right before Mass begins, and I sit at the very back. Unfortunately, that doesn't help me sometimes, because somehow the ushers... Jonathan. Nice to meet you. Word. Which is also why I also close my eyes, and I look very stuffy, so people don't mess with me. Um, you start coughing. Well, the, the, so, right now I could. Are they doing now, that at the opening of the liturgy? They're introducing themselves? Oh, maybe, oh, yeah. yes. Oh, it's quite a... So, it's quite a, now I will give you a, a situation um, at my former parish, yeah. St. Mary of Sorrows, before they got the kneelers. Okay. Before Barquette. Um, well, even during Barquette, at the beginning. The bishop had given a special, uh, uh, a special permission, and the instruction is, because there are no kneelers, you were to stand. Mm. But people were reading okay. what the general instruction said. Yeah. And so they knelt because they said, well, that's what the church says. That's what we do. But they didn't read the back where it talks about that. Those particular gestures are at the discretion of the bishop. And that bishop had given a specific directive for that parish for that. Mm -hmm. So the unity, um, we had some the, the unity is always presumptive that you're in obedience to your bishop. Okay. Now, if your bishop is way out there, well, then it defaults back to Rome. And let's just make it easier and say, here we are in the Diocese of Arlington, so it's much easier for us. True. Okay. Yeah, I didn't want to go down a rabbit hole. I just well, thought it would ask. Sounds like a judgment. Yeah, that hole. Um, so, uh, so just as, uh, just as a little history to understand, kneeling, um, kneeling was part of Jewish prayer, but not part of Jewish liturgical prayer. So it was part of their private prayer. It's part of their private prayer. Um, and it was especially meant for those times of intensive prayer or those times of, of uh, submission to our Lord. So uh, um, the kneeling posture was introduced in the liturgy principally as a sign of, of humble submission, of sorrow, and a penitential spirit. Okay. Um, and that kneeling was, as the church goes on to say by Tertullian, it's incompatible with the time of joy, such as Eastertide, but especially suitable for times of fasting. So while we don't really practice it here, the Rogation Days or the Ember Days, um, which work with the seasons, will be times that were set aside in the early church for kneeling uh, during specific times of liturgy. Um, most especially uh, in, uh, throughout the history of the church, kneeling was part of Good Friday. Because that was most specifically set aside for that. Um, are there, days in ordinary time? there still are Ember Days. Yep. Okay. But I mean, like, of the seasons, they're in Lent, Advent, ordinary time, but not in Easter? No, they mark, they mark astronomical seasons, not liturgical seasons. Okay. So the, the last set of Ember Days would have been um, around June 24th. So, uh, 4th. Um, you can be
It's a thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually going through the options in my head to see if I want to ask. <laughs> but, you're kneeling, but you're still kind of sitting. But you're oh, yeah, so, so some of the pastors actually now have redesigned their churches um, because most, most pews are a distance so you can lean back on it. But say like St. Teresa's in Ashford and some of the newer churches, they've added an additional 12 inches. You so you can't do it. You either have to sit or kneel. Oh, port. Okay. Or you fall when you try. So here's why. The Jews believe that the knees uh, are the source of the person's strength and power. And so, and this is important. Uh, for the Christian to bend both knees is to submit and offer oneself completely uh, to the Holy Trinity. It's why in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, um, uh, proclaims that all who acknowledge Jesus as Lord uh, and will uh, eventually bend the knee. Now, I gave you the translation uh, that you usually read in, in, in your Bibles, okay? Where it says, uh, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, okay? The word is bend. In the, in the liturgical readings that we have, it says bend, not bow, okay? Because remember, what you hear with the lectionary is a slightly different translation that you buy at, at Paschal Lamb. Um, bow is bow is a little different, um, uh, and we'll get to that here in a second. Okay. Um, so uh, so the desert uh, the desert father is even described as the devil as having no knees, um, because completely powerless uh, before Christ. All right, um, and so uh, using that, uh, Cardinal Rasser in his Spirit of Liturgy has this really cool uh, line that it says the inability to kneel is seen by the fathers of the church as the very essence of the diabolic. The refusal to bend the knees. So usually when I'm assisting, getting uh, everybody um, uh, ready for the confirmation liturgies with Tony Holland as we're going through the practice, there's always the question, well, my heels don't let me genuflect when I come in, what do I do? And I, and I repeat this line. Well, the church has always believed that the inability to bend one's knee to genuflect is the essence of the diabolic. So yeah, but... Uh, and, and they're like, but that means I can't wear these shoes. Well, Darn. it's not a style competition. This is, this is practicality for the divine liturgy. This isn't about you. It's about him. And Tony lets me say it, and um, they ignore me anyway. And I'm not saying that I think it's funny. However, one or two times, because it's stone, and they're brand, they're new, uh, brand new heels, they slip. And the knee still hits the ground. Yeah, hits the ground hard too. To <laughs> it's like, oh. um, for so, that. The questions sure. is uh, so like, um, did you already mention Revelation? Because what's coming to my mind is right at, at the name of Jesus. Right, every yeah. knee shall bend. Yeah. So out of Philippines. Yes. Yeah. So we just. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. Sorry, it took me a second. I'll no, no, you're fine. You're saying. Um, so, uh, so what's interesting here is um, that Benedict continues to make a case. That kneeling is a posture, that kneeling is a posture learned through the knowledge of God. And that's why the early church gives, uh, gives a strong witness to it. In fact, um, in fact, uh, you see in Psalm 95, 6, another one of your quotes here, about bowing and kneeling are the appropriate response and expression uh, before the majesty of the living God. Why? You come into his presence, it, and scripture says that no sin may enter into the presence of God. It immediately pushes you to the ground. As C.S. Lewis would say, 
the weight of his glory. Mm. Um, and so I, I love, actually, this is a phrase uh, from, from the Charismatics and the Pentecostals from the Protestant Church that I love, and I wish we could get a little more, said that we're under the weight of his presence. So, and it pushes us to our knees because it brings to mind the knowledge of our inadequacy before the divine majesty. Um, what's interesting is you can also find kneeling uh, before our Lord in, in Scripture. Notice that the first, uh, the first Scripture I gave you in Mark 1, 40 is about the lepers. Remember, lepers are unclean, and sickness and disease were related to sinfulness, and so they bow before the Lord, okay? You have the possessed who know who he is, so they're naturally forcing the body to bow before him because he is, he is the God. Um, you find, uh, you find uh, in Matthew 9, 18, uh, that uh, what's interesting about that one, where is it? 9, 18, there it is. While he was thus speaking to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. What's important about that is rulers don't kneel before the hoi polloi. And so there was a submission to who he was. Not only that ruler was a Gentile, okay, um, a Roman ruler, so he had legal authority over him, but he submitted to the authority of the Christ as he was preaching. Mark? You can choose not to answer this question, but because um, <laughs> it might be just getting too much in the weeds, but we see kneeling here with the seeching and asking the Lord for things, right? But then we also, at least I also think of um, the posture of standing with intercession, like standing to intercede for others. Is, is, is that a distinction we should make? Or? What's well, the distinction we're going to make? Because um, what we find when we look at Jewish worship is it goes standing to bowing to kneeling. Um, when we get to it, bowing is actually the the... Um, it, it's the supplication okay. for it. Okay. So it's just like a process. That goes it's a process, yeah. Okay. But um, you can see most in, in, in the liturgy. Um, let me close your ears for this. In theory, okay, there's a third bow, but it's reserved only to the celebrant. And the celebrant, during the words of institution, should be leaning onto the altar with the arms, bowing over it, speaking towards the element that's there, okay? It's a very specific gesture. I'm skipping a little ahead. Bowing while you're speaking is a liturgical gesture that says, this is not my voice, these are not my words. Mm. I do that. Oh, I've seen the poster. I don't have my... Oh, yeah, I know. Oh, okay, okay. I remember noticing Father Pat like this. Just this past Sunday, and I'm like, why is he so far forward? Which is why when I go before, when I go before and ask the blessing of of the priest for the gospel, those words is a recognition that I'm going to say words that are not my own. When deacons, uh, uh, when those diaconos, those slaves that give message, they come before the kings. The way that you didn't get your head lopped off is you bowed when you said the words to say. Don't shoot the messenger. These aren't my words. I'm just repeating what I was told. You can also head anyway. But, um, but that's, that's the gesture that these words aren't my own. It's a slight bow over. During the liturgy, the rubrics talk about leaning against the altar. That foundation stone, that, that, that eternal stone that doesn't move. Um, that rock of Christ. This eternal mystery that continues from now into glory. Uh, that's there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and then uh, lastly, you have in Matthew 15, the Gentile woman who submits herself 
because she recognizes that the Lord God of Israel is the only one who can provide healing, and so she submits herself uh, under him. Uh, most important piece that Pope Benedict brings out is that kneeling is not only a Christian gesture, but it's a Christological one, meaning, um, as St. Luke's describes kneeling of Christians, and, and the Greek phrase there is uh, um, theis tegunata. Uh, it is a very specific phrase that is unique, that's not found in classical Greek. It is unique to Christianity. It's a new phrase that came into existence from the Christian experience of Christ uh, that's there. Um, and therefore, it's a very specific Christian word. Um, the reason we did kneel to our liturgy, especially all the way through fuel times, because it's fairly new to the liturgy per se, is because it was it was the symbol of of servitude. Now we're servants of the Christ, but by baptism, standing in Christ, we stand righteous before the Lord. Not that we deserve it, but He has made us thus. Which is why, again, standing is that proper uh, time of prayer. Why do we fall to our knees? Think about when we're uh, uh, we come to our knees during the Eucharistic prayer. Uh, notice the only time I kneel during the liturgy is during the words that are not my own. That is specifically to the ministry of the priest. I kneel down at the epiclesis, which is the gesture of let your Holy Spirit come down upon, let your Spirit come down upon these gifts and make them holy. Everybody's okay. kneeling at that point around except the altar. The except, for, except for the celebrant and the deacon. And the yeah. So it's, 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 when, it's when those hands uh, come that you'll notice, um, you'll notice that as those hands come down, I'm kneeling down with those hands as well to show the weight of the glory of the Holy Spirit, the parousy or the parousy, however you want to say it, that second coming of the Holy Spirit to change those elements, that those words are not my own, and it, 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 it distinguishes between the priests um, and, and the deacon. Remember, in persona Christi, Capitas et spousa, in persona Christi servum. We both stand in persona Christi by ordination, it's by degree for it. Okay? After um, the priest uh, elevates the host and then um, kneels, um, mm -hmm. should the laity do, because we're already kneeling, right? But I assume it, in other countries, like if we were standing, would we do a profound bow or a simple bow at that point? Or would we do a genuflect? You know, like if we went to Europe, you know what I mean? You mean for the for the uh, for the Agnus Dei? Because well, everybody, because no. yeah, so everybody's kneeling. Everybody's yes. still kneeling. That's that's across the board. Right. But like okay. sometimes, like the musicians are standing because of like logistical reasons, they have to stand. Yeah. So it should be a, it should be a so profound bow. It's a profound bow. Okay. Right. Cool. So genuflection means something very different. But sometimes people who are kneeling do like a weird like. Yeah, I know. It, it, it's, you know, um, the, the best part is when people bow, they watch too many martial arts movies, so their eyes are looking up, which is communicating the wrong thing because that, from the Orient, means that we're equal. So the one that you're bowing to, what you're saying is, I'm equal with you. That is not what we do in the liturgy. It is look towards dirt because no way, no how equal. When you said that when you bow, it's to signify that those words are not your own. Are you, 
and I'm different from him. But would a deacon be saying those words? Oh, good Lord, no. That, so, right. Like, we all are, that, like, you would, like, wouldn't they only be the priest's words? All the priests and the concelebrants. Right, so yeah. it's, it's their words, but even those words are not his own. So, um, the words of institution. You use the same phrase to talk about when you preach, when you yeah. say the gospel. No, yeah. right. Yeah. So, so I, I'm, 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 because there's a distinction in, in, in holy orders. I'm not a priest. I'm happy not to be a priest. Um, no, I mean, it's just, it's just my vocation. I'm happy so, not to be a bishop. Right there. <laughs> I, I never, I, I'm now going to have to watch Hepler and see, to me, the, the deacons are always just kneeling at the point that the priest is consecrating, but I guess I, I'm going to watch and see if deacon is actually kneeling as he does. Remember, <laughs> remember also, so there are only, there are only, there are only two deacons that are MCs in the diocese. There are only two of them that have enough liturgy to make those distinctions. Okay, um, I would like to say that our liturgy classes, I learned all this from our liturgy classes, but I did not. Remember, most deacons who come through our program, permanent deacons, are business majors. Their minds don't work with philosophy, and it hurts with liturgy. Unfortunately, most permanent deacons through their training, they're taught praxis instead of theology. Here's what you got to do to get it done. So they don't necessarily understand why they're doing what they're doing when they're doing it. The last year, the last year is, um, uh, the last year is about praxis. Half of it's on homilies, half of it is how to do the sacraments. He did the same thing, except that you had two years in liturgy? Full year. Yeah, full year, so two semesters. Yeah. So, uh, for liturgy. I, I mean, I had it before them, but I had one, um, and it was just the basic theology of the liturgy, not what I'm going into with you here. That was from earlier studies and classes. So oh, basically, that's why you'll see the deacons just already kneeling before the priest is even yeah. starting I, the whole, because yeah. that's, to me, it's just like everybody's kneeling except the priest. Because, because there's, there's an intentionality that, that as you learn more, you should accustom yourself to, to those particular liturgical actions and what should be happening during that time. Um, I, I should be doing more because I understand it more. I know what's supposed to be happening. If I'm not doing it, then there's a higher degree of responsibility. Okay, so Peter's not in trouble and Hepler's not in trouble. <laughs> They're not no, and, and, and I, again, I, I said this last week. I say it every week. Please, you're here to learn for yourself. Don't worry about everybody else. You, I mean, your own family, take care of that. But... but um, even even within, and I'll use Father Barquette because he said it publicly as well, when he was at the Mount, not big on liturgy. Mm -hmm. And so when the general instruction was coming out, mm -hmm. he brought me in to do a whole day for all the clergy and the staff at mm -hmm. St. Mary's on the, the general instruction. I did eight hours. This is what we look like. Eight hours attention. <laughs> eight <I> mean, hours. <laughs> seriously, so, so part of it is when I talked about the Eucharistic prayers, that there are certain ones that are meant to be said on particular days, and they all kind of looked at each other and said, did anybody know that? And they're like, Marks, where is it? So I took the general instruction, put it in front of them. Like, was it in the old one? Yes. So mm -hmm. how come we didn't learn? Not, not my circus, not my <laughs> monkey. Uh, you asked me to teach this. I'm just telling you what it says. Exactly. You're the pastor. You do you. Do you. 
So I've been hearing an, a different Eucharistic prayer from one of our priests that I'm used to. So, but I don't since I don't have any of these books, I don't know which one. Uh, I just recognize that it's not not the usual. It's probably four. Four. I mean, it's fine. Four. It's Father Siri, so he seems to say off. something different than. Uh, At least Father Thomas tells me. He said, "Hey, I'm using four today." That means I can go take a look to look for the lines that I, I should be hearing. Because there's nothing that panics you more. Because remember, the deacon's always on the right. Can't see the missile. Therefore, I have to have memorized key lines. And we hear your prayer like, oh, shoot. <laughs> so you're like, no idea. what. So then I'm just, I'm looking for the gestures. And I'm waiting. I'm hoping that the priest does the gesture pronounced enough. So he comes like this, like, oh, Epiclesis, that means I'm coming down at that. <laughs> But if he doesn't, I'm just messed. And I, I have to wait. And then the awkwardness of that, moving the pall. And like, okay, let me go down this one. <laughs> you get a little lower to the ground. Yeah, so you're like, don't know what's happening. <laughs> which is always, tell your deacon which prayer you're using for. <laughs> so, um, That's the night you should Yeah. No one prayer Seriously. I get it. Um, cool. Uh, so... Uh, for uh, for kneeling for us um, in in the U.S. liturgy, uh, it is during uh, during uh, the Eucharistic prayer. Okay, uh, we rise after the Great Amen, um, and through that we have the Our Father, the embolism. Uh, then we move into the Communion rite, um, uh, at which uh, after the uh, New Day we kneel back down. Okay which is a specific ex- exception and in in indulgence for the U.S. Uh, the rest of the world, they stand. They stand. Um, why? Because before the throne of God, you've gone through at that point those three moments of, uh, remember there's that, that, uh, that um, a penitential rite is in three places. So it's right there at the beginning. It's right there um, after we proclaim the gospel, okay? And then it's right after that, uh, the elevation, um, we're asking the Lord to, to heal our, our souls, okay? Um, That's the I'm not worthy, right? Right, okay. So, so we, we kneel down uh, for that, but traditionally we're standing uh, for that, okay? Um, Times it. I can get bound bow with you quick and then we'll continue on next week for the rest of it. Um, bowing, yes, what about Jesus kneeling? Oh, I'm sorry, yes. So, Jesus kneeling in, in, in the garden, Dawn brought up and she guessed right, rightly that why does our, our Lord kneel? Um, it's the submission to his Father's will. Remember, the kneeling is that sign of submission, okay. But also note, when he comes up and he wakes the disciples up, he doesn't say, tell them to kneel and join them to pray. He says, stand up and pray that you may not enter into the trial. Still that posture of victory, still that posture of prayer very much to, uh, to, uh, to the uh, Jews. There is, we don't have time to go into this, um, I could make an easy case that even in the Garden of Gethsemane, liturgy is still going on because from the moment uh, that Torah sacrifice, the moment that that Passover starts until that fourth cup is drank, which is on the cross 
are still in the liturgy. So it's still it's still a liturgy. Just remember, the Paschal mystery um, uh, is is if when we break it up, is not just the life, death, and resurrection, but also the ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Different moments, all one action. This is why at the Triduum, yeah. uh, we try to do, it's a continuous liturgy. So like from the moment Holy Thursday is over, there is no closing of a liturgy until the Easter Vigil. Until the Easter Vigil. So, so... so we, won't, we wouldn't go all the way to Pentecost. That'd be a little bit much. Oh yeah, that'd be a little much. So forth. <laughs> okay. So bowing. Bowing is the other sign of reverence. So uh, reverence and respect to a person or symbol that it represents. In Novus Ordo, we have two. It's the simple and the profound, or what we uh, like to call the bow of the head and the bow of the body. So uh, the bow of the head is made at uh, when the three divine persons are named together. Um, and at the names of Jesus, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the saint of the day, uh, and who, and who uh, the, uh, the Mass is being celebrated for. So if you're at Mass today, at the name uh, Kateri uh, Tekawitha, you would have a simple bow. Uh, of the head, okay. Um, I see many doing it uh, for Saint Joseph as well. Yes, because it's the jubilee year. The jubilee so year. this yeah. year you would include Joseph in it because it's a jubilee year. Okay. So oh, one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, isn't it? So the profound bow is the bending at the waist um, to the floor as close to ninety degrees as possible. If you have a little more extra, then it's probably more like eighty-six. So. Uh, for it. Um, but um, the profound bow is all when reverencing the altar. Okay, It is not a head bow. It is a profound bow uh, towards the altar. Um, for important mysteries of the faith, so for instance, in the recognition of the Blessed Trinity during a doxology. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. During that doxology, if you've ever been with us for any of the, um, especially at Compline when we're doing it, it is a profound bow uh, at that time. Uh, for the Trinity. Um, it's also during Mass, which is one of those gestures that I just never see, at the mystery of the Incarnation during the Creed. It is a profound bow for everybody, not just for the priest and the deacon. Ha-ha! So, makes fun of me because I tend to bow much further down. So... I'll let you. I'll let, I'll let you deal with that and your husband. Um, so we also remember the Lord while teaching the temple, pointed out the tax collector who bowed his head low. We already looked at that scripture, okay? While beating his breast in contrast to the Pharisees, who does not. The Pharisee stands in prayer, but he refuses to strike his breast or to bow his head. No reverence, no contrition. Okay. Um, tax collector understands his relationship. The Pharisees presumes it. Um, the first sentence of a Eucharistic prayer one in the Roman canon uses the word uh, uh, supplices, which is where we get the word supplication. There's a couple of scriptures that I read it uh, that it talked about supplication, but it's the wrong translation that's there. Okay, uh, supplication is also uh, that bowing and reverence to ask for intercession, okay? Father, your blessing, bowing before the gospel, okay? Um, most reverend Father, your blessing, 
Okay. Um, so the way it works is uh, deacon bows to priest, priest bows to bishop. Okay. So you always, you always bow to receive the blessing of the one above you uh, for it. Um, so um, that particular word denotes beseeching or imploring God um, in our humanity, which is why Cardinal Ratzinger translates the word bowing low as we implore thee. It's another way to translate it. When we see bowing lower, we implore thee, O Lord. Okay. Um, so bowing is both a supplication before and the acknowledgement of he who is the king of kings and lord of lords. Um, so bowing uh, for, for 1,800 years, no, 1,600 years in the Roman rite was what you did instead of kneeling. Because the assumption is you're coming into the liturgy reconciled. You went to confession before. So you come in as clean as you can and the Lord makes up where we lack. And so we bow out of reverence. Make sense? We'll continue next week. To give you a foretaste, you have genuflections, sitting, prostrations, sign of the cross, you know, walking in procession, all kinds of fun things. Like I said, there's a lot here. Um, hope I'm going through this a little slower for you because this is the one that most people care about. For it. You're taking next week, right? Uh, every week. Okay. Every week.